The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Our reading today comes from the book of uh, 1 John chapter 3, and we're in uh, the New American Standard Bible version today. You can follow on your phone or your Bible or here on the screen. It's titled, Children of God Love One Another. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us? that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure." Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who was born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. 
my name is Matt Tolander. I'm the leadership development pastor at a church in Austin called Midtown Church. And prior to that, uh, I was here at Axe. I called Axe home. And so it's always uh, an awesome opportunity for me. I love coming back to be able to share with you guys. Um, we are in 1 John 3 this morning, and uh, we do have a lot to cover. And so we are going to move pretty quickly. I went a little long in the first service, so I just want to warn you potentially that I, I might have to go a little bit long in this one. I will try my best to, uh, to keep it tight. But um, the Apostle John had a couple different purposes for writing this letter to these churches in Ephesus. That is where John uh, was a leader in the Christian movement, was in Ephesus. And so he's writing these churches there. And his primary purpose in writing to them is to assure them that they have eternal life, that they possess it. And what is the best way to be assured that you possess eternal life? It is to experience eternal life. And so if you're now wondering, how does one go about experiencing eternal life, then this is the perfect sermon series for you, and John is the perfect person to teach you, uh, because eternal life is, is one of his favorite subjects. He mentions eternal life more than every other New Testament author combined between his gospel account and the three letters that we have from him. Uh, eternal life is central to John's definition of the gospel. Um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. We need to understand John's theology. We need to understand his definition of the gospel. We need to understand the way that he thinks about Christian spirituality. Because some of the stuff that we just heard in that reading from the, the chapter that we'll look at this morning is kind of confusing. And it's a little tricky. And so if you can understand John's mind and where he's coming from, then it will help you to understand the things that he's saying in 1 John 3. So let's start here. Um, if someone approached you and asked you to explain Christian spirituality in one sentence, how would you do it? How would you summarize the gospel in one sentence or perhaps in like bullet points? How would you make it brief? How would you put the cookies on the bottom shelf? How would you make it easy for someone to understand? Um, I come from an evangelical background, and so we have the four spiritual laws. So I was taught to explain the gospel this way, that uh, God created you, loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, mankind is sinful and separated from God. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for sin. And if you put your faith or confidence in Jesus Christ, you can have all of your sin forgiven and live in heaven with God forever when you die. John would summarize it a bit differently. In fact, he can do it much shorter than I just did. John summarizes the gospel in uh, five words. I think if, some, if, you asked, if he were here today and you asked him to sum it up very briefly, he would say something like this. He would say, knowing God is eternal life. That's all of John's theology in one sentence. Knowing God is eternal life. Listen to two verses from John's gospel account. The first is John 3.36. Uh, Jesus is speaking in both of these. The first verse is John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. And I don't have time to go into this this morning, but isn't it interesting that he holds up belief and disobedience as opposites? It's just fascinating to me. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. And then John 17, 3, Jesus speaking again. This is during the high priestly prayer. Uh, this is eternal life, 
So if you needed a definition of eternal life straight from the lips of the Son of God, here it is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's important to understand Before we look at 1 John, it's important to understand that in the mind of this man, the disciple who Jesus loved, Jesus' best friend in in the gospel stories, you have to understand that in his mind, belief in Christ is inseparable from relationship with Christ. John sees no distinction between those two things. Belief in Christ is inseparable from from relationship with Christ. You cannot have one without the other. And I imagine that John would be rather shocked to stumble into one of our typical American churches and hear the gospel presented as sort of the bare minimum requirements for getting into heaven when you die. And to see discipleship and spiritual formation treated as optional rather than as central and indispensable to Christian spirituality. John understood something um, that most modern Christians or many modern Christians, especially of the the Western or the American variety, um, seem to have either forgotten or never fully comprehended. And it's this, and I need you to listen to me closely here because this is really, really important. The good news of the gospel is not that you can go to heaven when you die. Okay, no one's thrown a shoe at me yet. Okay, the good news of the gospel is not that you can go to heaven when you die. That was not the message of Jesus, and that is not John's gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you can go to heaven before you die. Okay, still no one's thrown anything at me. I'm feeling pretty safe. The good news of the gospel is that you can go to heaven before you die, meaning you can live in God's kingdom starting right now. So Jesus' repeated message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, rethink how you're living your life. That's what it means to repent. Rethink how you're living your life in light of the opportunity to live in God's kingdom today and forever by putting your confidence in him. So Christian spirituality is about cultivating an intimate an interactive relationship with God in his kingdom, which is what John calls eternal life. And it is a relationship and an experience that begins here and now and then continues into forever. And so if we fail to understand that Jesus and John both see our citizenship and our participation in God's kingdom as a present and active reality, then it will be very difficult to understand what John is trying to say in our passage this morning. Uh, John has written this letter so that his readers would understand how to experience eternal life, so that as they experience eternal life, they would be assured of their possession of eternal life, because the best way to know you possess eternal life is to experience eternal life. And all Christians do possess eternal life. That is what we read in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But not all Christians experience it. And this is very important to understand. Every Christian possesses eternal life. But not all Christians experience eternal life. What I mean by this is that 
All Christians have an established and unbreakable relationship with God, but not all Christians have fellowship with him. Not all Christians are intimate with him. Not all Christians walk closely with him. Not all Christians know him. So think of it this way. All of us have an established and unbreakable relationship with our earthly father because we are his child. We have genetic markers that say so. We might have physical markers that say so. Uh, My physical marker that I'm my dad's child is that I already have gray hair at the age of 29. So we have an unbreakable and established relationship with our earthly fathers, but not all of us experience fellowship with our earthly father. Um, And for various reasons, maybe your father was absent from your life, or maybe your father was present in your life, but he was absent in all the ways that matter. Or maybe your father was present in your life, but his presence in your life was actually something to be escaped rather than to be embraced or celebrated. So you can see that it's possible to have an unbreakable relationship with someone while at the same time having no fellowship, no closeness, no intimacy with that person at all. But God is not like our earthly fathers because God is always present in, with, and around us And God is always available to us. And the difference between our earthly fathers and our heavenly father is that our heavenly father is perfectly consistent in showing up for our relationship with him. So what that means, though, is that if we don't have fellowship with God, it's not God who's letting us down. If we don't have fellowship with God, then it's us who are not always present or not always available, or who are not always consistent in showing up for our relationship with him. So while your relationship with God is established on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and is initiated by belief in him, your fellowship with God depends entirely upon you. It depends entirely upon you. If you put your confidence in Christ, you possess eternal life. But if you choose not to engage in an intimate and interactive relationship with him, then you will not experience eternal life now. And your experience of eternal life in the kingdom in eternity will be affected also which is what brings us to our passage this morning. And to get the context of what John is talking about in chapter 3, we have to hop backward a couple verses into chapter 2. And as we make our way through the passage, you will notice that John has this very unique writing style. Uh, He doesn't write the way that, for example, the apostle Paul writes. Uh, Paul was an expert in the law, and so he writes like a lawyer. It's all very linear and organized and kind of argumentative. John writes a little bit different. In Christian iconography and Christian art throughout the centuries, John is often depicted uh, with an eagle. It's like the symbol of John the Apostle is this eagle. And he sort of, the, the picture I get in my head when I read his writing is that of an eagle who is circling above an area and can see the big picture, but is also zeroing in on specific things but it's just sort of like very, um, very easily just hovering and circling above and just observing things. And that's kind of how John comes across when he's writing. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 28, because this will establish the context for everything that we'll look at in chapter 3. 
John writes, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So the question that John is going to begin circling and observing is, what does it mean to live in light of Christ's return? Uh, And this examination starts in this verse, chapter 2, verse 28, and it continues all the way to chapter 4, verse 16. So this is the context for everything we will talk about this morning and a good chunk of what you'll hear next week. Uh, And John knows something that each of us ought to know and think about often, and it's this, that when Jesus returns, each of us will have to stand before him and give an account of our life to him. And just like the master in Jesus' parable of the talents, Jesus will evaluate how well we have stewarded the time and the gifts and the resources and the relationships that he has given us in this life. And this is not a judgment that determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's a different moment. This judgment is only for believers, and this judgment will determine rewards and responsibilities that will be given to us in uh, the kingdom. And John's encouragement to his readers is that we abide in Christ so that when he returns, we will experience joy rather than shame because of our disobedience or regret because of a wasted life. And it may be hard for you to comprehend the reality that it will be possible to feel shame in heaven, in the presence of Christ. But think of it this way. We will have our eternal bodies at that point, and we will be free from the presence of sin, which means that we won't have sin in our hearts and in our thinking that uh, mitigates the ugliness of sin when we look at it. We won't have pride. We won't have the inclination to justify ourselves, because we'll see our sin like Jesus sees it in all of its true ugliness um, and without any kind of gauzy filter over it. And I do wonder whether this is why the scriptures say that he will wipe every tear from our faces, because I imagine that would be my response if I were to look at all the sin in my life uh, in the presence of Jesus. But I also believe that in that moment, we will experience the mercy and the grace of Christ in a more powerful way than we have ever experienced it before. Regardless, John is very intentional in saying that that moment should motivate us to remain focused on becoming like him, because eventually we're going to stand eye to eye with him. So uh, the word abide in verse 28 is very important. Uh, It appears seven different times in the verses leading up to the passage that we're looking at this morning. And John, of course, is also responsible for the most famous use of the word abide in the New Testament. In John 15, the words of Jesus, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So abiding is shorthand for intimate and interactive relationship. So when you see the word abide in the New Testament, you need to think intimate 
and interactive relationship. It's being with Jesus and becoming like him and doing the sorts of things that he did. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And this is another hallmark of John's theology, the idea of being born of God or uh, born from above or some translations will translate it born again, for example, in John 3. I really prefer born from above uh, as a translation. But um, John writes in chapter 5 of this letter that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And, of course, the operative word is believe. And belief is different than knowledge. This is important to understand. Belief is different than knowledge. Um, Knowing about Jesus is not belief. And agreeing with Jesus is not the same thing as belief. Um, Biblically speaking, belief is the readiness to act as if what you believe is actually true. So you believe something when your whole being is ready to act as if that something were so. So, biblically speaking, you did not believe the chair that you're sitting in could hold you up off the ground until you actually put your bottom in it. That is the biblical idea. And this belief is what initiates being born of God or born from above. The the birth from above is the entrance of God's nature and life into our own life and existence and reality. Now, One of John's secondary concerns in writing this letter, the the primary concern is to assure them that they have eternal life. Secondary concern in writing this letter uh, is what he calls in chapter 2, antichrists. And Josh did a really good job last week of explaining that, so I won't spend too much time on it. You can go back to the podcast. But when John says antichrists in this letter, he's referring to false teachers who are threatening the churches to whom he is writing. And John wants his readers to be able to tell the difference between an imposter, a false teacher, and a true child of God. So now as we move into chapter 3, you're going to see how John, who is circling above the idea of living in light of Christ's return, how he zeroes in on two different subjects in this chapter. And the first subject he's going to zero in on is learning to live as children of God. So chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, as we go through this passage, if you're a, a kind of a biblically literate person, a lot of what he says is going to sound really, really familiar. And that's because a lot of it is almost like, it's like he copied and pasted it out of his gospel account and into this letter. Uh, And so if you're motivated to go and read some more scripture on your own, you could read John 13 through 17, which is what we call the upper room discourse, and you will notice that it is where John explains the the ideas that also pop up in this letter, Uh, and he kind of goes into more detail in the gospel account. But this is something that Jesus said uh, in the upper room discourse. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me, they're going to hate you too. Um, In the book of Matthew, Jesus puts it this way. He says, uh, if they called the master of the house the devil, then how much more will they malign the members of his household? Um, Or Martin Luther, I've heard this quote attributed to Luther. I can't 
verify that Luther said it, but I've heard it attributed to him. Um, if, if they gave our master a crown of thorns, why would we expect them to give us a crown of roses? That is the idea. Um, yeah, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So in just three verses, John has given us some insight that to be a child of God, living in light of Christ's eventual return, uh, is to be at least five things from these three verses. The first is that to be a child of God, living in light of Christ's eventual return, is to be greatly loved by the Father. The second is that it is to be unrecognizable to the world. The third is that it is to be on a trajectory toward Christ-likeness. Fourth, it is to have a hope that is fixed on Christ. And fifth, to be a child of God, living in light of Christ's eventual return, is to be intentionally pursuing our destiny of Christ-likeness by taking initiative action towards spiritual growth. But look at what John says in verse 2. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be made like him, because we'll see him just as he is. Um, did any of y'all happen to see the movie Uncut Gems that came out in December? Lots of shaking heads. Okay. Um, I, feel, I would feel a little bit uncomfortable recommending it from the pulpit because there's some content in there that, that you might find objectionable. Uh, but it's a very good film. And in the movie, Adam Sandler plays a jeweler. And he works in New York City's Diamond District. And he manages to get his hands on a sizable chunk of very rare black opal, which is a very rare gem. And, uh, and the opal is, uh, is uncut. It, it's about the size of a potato, and it kind of looks just like a rock. Um, and it doesn't actually seem like there's anything all that special about it. But early on in the movie, Kevin Garnett, the basketball player, comes into his, uh, his jewelry store, and Adam Sandler's character shows him this opal, and even though it's uncut, in places it has had the exterior chipped away so that you could hold it up to the light and peek inside and see what is actually in there and see the gem, even though it's still in its uncut form. And I think that this is kind of a useful image to help us understand what John means uh, when he says, um, uh, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared uh, what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him. I think we can think of ourselves kind of like uncut gems, like we're diamonds down to our core, uh, but right now we're kind of cloudy and white, and to the casual observer, we may not look like a diamond, um, we may not feel like a diamond all the time, we might feel like just another rock, like we don't all sparkle and shine the way that you expect diamonds to do, but if you chipped a piece off of our exterior and held us up to the light, and could see inside, then you would see what we really are. And you would see what we will be when Jesus returns. Our essential nature will not change. Uh, our essential nature changes when we're born from above. 
But what will happen is that, that we will be more of what we already are and in a more complete and an even more beautiful way than we can imagine. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Uh, lawlessness here, it, it just means flagrant opposition to God. Is flagrant opposition to God. So John says, um, everyone who practices sin practices flagrant opposition to God. Um, changes the way we think about the kind of pet sins in our lives that we think are no big deal. Flagrant opposition to God. And John can't make any sense of how someone who's born of God could go about flagrantly opposing him. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared, Jesus that is, in order to take away sins, and in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you, like the false teachers he's warning them about. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So don't revel in the thing that Jesus came to destroy. Verse 9, no one who's born of God practices sin because his seed, that probably means the Holy Spirit, his seed, the Holy Spirit, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. This is the practical concern. He wants them to be able to tell the difference between the imposters and uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And these five verses are a little tricky to deal with because it's, John has this tendency to speak in absolutes, and it really sounds like what he's saying is that real Christians don't sin. And that if you do sin, you're of the devil. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, and I don't have all the time in the world to explain all the various things that John is not saying. Um, and so if you're motivated, again, I would just really suggest that you study this week John 13 through 17 in his gospel account. And much more will become clear. But here's, here's what I think John is saying. I think he's saying that the more you love Jesus, the less you will want to sin, and the more you will want to keep his commandments. I think that's what he's getting at. The more you love Jesus, the less you will want to sin, and the more you will want to keep his commandments. Jesus himself said in John 14, which again, is like the source text for this letter, the upper room discourse, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I don't think he meant that in a coercive way. I don't think Jesus meant that, um, I don't think he meant to say, if you love me, prove it, obey me. I don't think that's Jesus' attitude. And we struggle with, with this sort of idea um, because in our culture we confuse love with desire. Uh, you might say to me, I love chocolate cake. And I would say to you, no, you don't. You want to eat it. Two very different things. To love someone is to want to do what is in their best interest. It's to want to do whatever will inject goodness and blessing into their life. 
To love someone is to do what is best for them. So I don't think Jesus is saying, prove to me that you love me. I think he's saying that keeping his commandments and saying no to sin is the natural thing for someone who loves him to do. And it's the natural thing for someone who's uh, been born from above to do. And this is why John writes in chapter 5 of this letter, this is how we love God. We keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And then Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 11. Uh, just holler back if you know it. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus was being facetious when he said that? Do you think he meant what he said? Do you think he meant that keeping his commandments is easy? Do you think of keeping Jesus' commandments as easy? Or do you think of it as incredibly difficult or next to impossible? Because that is the way, if you're operating in a bare minimum requirement to get into heaven paradigm of thinking about Christian spirituality, then most of what Jesus says in the Gospels makes little to no sense at all, and the commands that he gives seem like impossible heights to reach, which has led some theologians to say, well, actually, that's the point. Jesus gave impossible commands so that you would try to keep them, realize you couldn't, and realize you need grace. I think that's ridiculous. I think Jesus meant what he said, and what he said was, my yoke is easy. And what John, the disciple maybe who knew him the most intimately, said about him was that you love him, you keep his commandments, and his commandments aren't burdensome. So how does it work? How does keeping the commandments of Jesus become easy? I think it works like this. Keeping Jesus' commandments is either going to be impossible or easy. It's going to be one of those two things. And keeping his commandments out of duty or obligation or tradition or because the preacher told me to or because my parents told me to or because I'm trying to manage my reputation, keeping Jesus' commandments for those reasons uh, is exhausting and it is impossible. But keeping his commandments because I love him and because I have an intimate and an interactive relationship with him, and I want to do what's best for him, that is easy. And this is what Dallas Willard called the secret of the easy yoke. Um, I would put it this way. Love is the secret sauce of obedience. Love is the secret sauce of obedience. I mean, if keeping Jesus' commands is hard for you, you can fall in love with them. And it will continue to be hard, and it will ultimately be impossible until we have spent the time with him. Because we love him, we have spent the time with him necessary in order to be transformed into the kind of person for whom keeping his commandments is easy. Um, I have to move on now, but yeah, if you're still curious about this idea, read John 13 through 17. And that's five chapters. Break it up this week. Read a chapter a day, Monday through Friday and read them slowly, read them over and over, read them out loud, and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and explain. Because um, he will explain it to you far more effectively than I could in this time. So, uh, at this point in the passage, John begins to zero in on a second idea. He's been zeroed in on the idea of, 
uh, living in light of Christ's return, and then very specifically, what does it mean to be a child of God? And now he's going to zero in on a second one, uh, which is learning to recognize love. What is love like? What does love look like in the life of a believer? Verse 11, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And he's getting that directly from Jesus in John 13, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So again, John, copy-pasting from his gospel into this letter. Verse 12, here's a negative example. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. So in other words, Cain killed Abel because the kind of person Cain was hated the kind of person that Abel was. Look at the next verse, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Again, he's just quoting Jesus here. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. The brethren here just means other believers. So here's the principle. How you think about and talk about and treat other Christians tells you a lot about the state of your heart, especially if they are Christians who come from a different tradition or denomination or have different ideological issues um, or perhaps someone who disagrees with you on politics. Like How you treat other believers with whom you disagree is an incredible indicator of how loving a person you are. And it's an incredible like, look and mark um, of what your, what your character is or, or your spiritual formation. John, is, uh, he sees love as being so inseparable from being a follower of Jesus that he says, if you love uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you can be reasonably confident that you've passed out of death into life. So for him, it's like it's the defining characteristic. It was the defining characteristic for Jesus too, because he said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Next phrase, he who does not love abides in death. Okay, what does this mean? He who does not love abides in death. He who does not love lives in death or remains in death or is surrounded by death. What dies in the absence of love? Most things But very specifically, what dies in the absence of love? Relationships die. Our relationships with people die in the absence of love. Our fellowship with God dies in the absence of love. Um, Our our conscience, even our ability to distinguish right from wrong, can be seared and damaged because of an unloving heart. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Does that sound familiar? That's, again, straight quote from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, if you hate your brother in the heart, you're guilty of the same sin. So again, John, just quoting Jesus. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus said in John 15, uh, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So you just see, this is just words of Jesus coming through John into this letter. But whoever has the world's goods 
and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Answer, it doesn't. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And pay close attention to the next two verses. We will know by this, the this being that we've loved in deed and truth and not just we're big talkers. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. In other words, you will not get it perfect. Sometimes you will mess up in sin. And if your heart condemns you, meaning if you feel guilty about it, if you struggle with it, um, and if you aren't afraid to call it what it is and confess it to God and ask for his help to deal with the issue, then the anguish and the anxiety that you feel when you sin is itself a sign that you are born of God. Because sin does not have relationship with our divine nature. They are opposed to one another. And so if you feel guilty, good. It means the Holy Spirit is in you and he's speaking to you. If you're totally at peace with sin in your life, that's when you have a problem. So, and of course, we have to mention what John says in chapter one of this letter, maybe the most quoted verse from this letter. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but... If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? Maybe like you believe it. How much unrighteousness? All. All. How much unrighteousness is he going to purify? How much is he going to leave intact? None. None. Isn't that incredible? Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So here's a really important principle, really, really important principle to understand. The more you grow, the more mature, the more Christ-like you become, the more God can trust you with spiritual power. The more you grow, the more mature and more Christ-like you become, the more God can trust you with spiritual power. It is God's desire that you should grow to the point that he could trust you with the power to do whatever you want. I want to say that again so that it sticks a little bit. It is God's desire that you would grow and mature into Christ-likeness to the point that he could trust you with power to do whatever you want. And he would be able to do that because your will would be so closely aligned with his that for him to empower you to to do the work would be the same thing as him doing it. And this is the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. I want you to listen to Jesus' words from John 14, because Jesus is inviting us to have the same kind of relationship with the Father that he has. That's the message of John 14, is that Jesus is sort of explaining this Trinitarian uh, unity, and that we have been invited into that same kind of intimate relationship with God. And here's what Jesus says in John 14. And he's going to describe his own interactive relationship with God. This is amazing. John 14. 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does the work. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go unto my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, do you think he was being facetious? Do you think he's joking around? Or did, he, did, did Jesus actually mean what he said? These are not the words of someone whose gospel is no more than you get to go to heaven when you die and your only hope in life is to be disembodied and evacuated. These are the words of the Son of God whose invitation is for you to put your confidence in him and to know him and to experience the eternal life that only comes from him and is only experienced in fellowship with him and to be transformed by his love for you and to obey his commandments out of your love for him. And then to be so closely united with him that in every situation you effortlessly do whatever it is he would do if he were you. And when that is the place you're in, then you can wholeheartedly echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is the gospel, is that you have the hope of being so closely united and so interconnected and woven together with Christ that the lines begin to blur between what is me acting and what is him acting. That's what Jesus said. I don't speak of my own initiative. The Father abiding in me is doing the work. That is what Jesus is calling all of us into. That is eternal life. And isn't that so much better than the bare minimum requirement of what it takes to get into heaven when you die. God does not leave our present lives untouched. He does not leave us to deal with sin in the world on our own. Verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So just to summarize for you, I have five key ideas from this passage, and you can write them down if you want, but here's, here's five ideas just to summarize everything we just talked about. The first one, all Christians possess eternal life, not all Christians experience it. It's the first big idea. All Christians possess eternal life, not all Christians experience it. We all have a relationship with God, not all of us experience fellowship with God, and it is entirely dependent on us to experience fellowship with him. Number two, we only experience eternal life through intimate and interactive relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our destiny, and it's available to us now. Third point, the inevitability of Jesus' return should motivate us to remain focused on becoming like him because we'll have to stand in front of him and give an account of our life. Fourth one, this is the shortest one, the easiest one to remember. Love is the secret sauce of obedience. 
Love is the secret sauce of obedience. Obeying Jesus is either going to be impossible or easy, and if it's going to be easy, it has to be because you love him, not because of a sense of obligation. Number five, the more we grow, the more God can trust us with spiritual power. The more we grow, the more God can trust us with spiritual power. That is what it means to be like Christ. It's to be so intimately connected to God that when I act, it's just as though God is acting through me. That is the goal. That is eternal life. Let me pray for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll approach the table together. Lord Jesus, we believe what you said, that whoever has seen you has seen the Father. And we believe that you've given the Holy Spirit to us. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, pray that you would challenge us and that you would motivate us to respond to what your servant John has written and what you have preserved through the years and translated into our language for us to be able to have it and understand it and obey it. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.